Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my source material. Currently, we're looking at the works of James Fenimore Cooper, specifically The Pathfinder. This is the fourth episode on The Pathfinder, so I encourage you to go back and listen to the earlier episodes on this novel, or better yet, to go back and listen to this series on the Leather Stocking Tales by James Fenimore Cooper, starting with The Deerslayer. Now, The Pathfinder was published in 1840, one year before the final novel of I guess in the terms of when they were published, the final book published in the Leather Second Tales of the Deerslayer, published in 1841. So this forms actually a couple of novels published around the same time that take up the early life of Leather Stocking in a bit more detail. They were written about 12, 13 years after he finished this character in the novel The Prairie. So actually, if you look at the order they were published, it's The Pioneers which is old leather stocking, Last of the Mohicans, which is young leather stocking, and then The Prairie, which is the final book. And then he picked this up 12 years later, and both of these novels, Pathfinder and The Deerslayer, they have a lot of similarities in the way they're structured. Thematically, they're quite similar, different, slightly different settings, but you know they have a lot of similarities, like A House Under Siege, for instance, that theme, um, kind of a... a this question of will this guy marry, that's in both of these novels. And they're both published later next to each other. So it's, it's, it's an experiment of Cooper going back to this character that he had kind of laid to rest. It's set chronologically after the events of The Last of the Mohicans and after the events of The Deerslayer. So that's why I'm looking at this third in this series, but it was actually the fourth of these novels to be published. Um, so in the course of this novel, our hero is known at, under a new name called Pathfinder. So this is actually the third name he's gone by in this series up to now. In fact, every one of the books has him identified under a different handle. Leatherstocking is simply how he was introduced in the, the Pioneers, which is his first, the first time he appeared in literature. So the, the Pathfinder begins, just for a way of review, the Pathfinder begins with a meeting up of two two groups of people, two parties, which is a common thing that uh, Cooper does in these novels. Basically, one group is Pathfinder, his Indian Delaware friend Chingachgook, the titular Last of the Mohicans from that novel. And they're with a man, a freshwater seaman named Jasper Western, or just sometimes referred to as Freshwater. And they meet a woman, Mabel Dunham, a young woman, her uncle Cap, who's a seaman, and their two Tuscarora guides, a man named Arrowhead and his wife, Dew of June. They travel up to Fort Oswego on Lake Ontario to meet uh, Mabel Dunham's father, who's a sergeant at the fort there, I think it's the 55th Regiment or something uh, in the British Army. This is all set during the French and Indian War. They are ambushed during their travel by Iroquois, and they narrowly escape due to the bravery 
primarily of Jasper, Chingachgook, and Pathfinder. So these three characters show their metal, show their merit. And then they find, well, during this uh, fight, Arrowhead and Jude of June disappear. Now, after arriving at the fort, we learn that Mabel's father, Sergeant Dunham, wants Pathfinder to marry Mabel. But she has other suitors. Um, Jasper is falling in love with Mabel, and Mabel is, has eyes for Jasper. They're both of similar age. Um, you know, they're just a better fit, I guess, naturally. And there's also the, the fort commander, Duncan, uh, thinks that the quartermaster, a Scottish man named Muir, is a better candidate. And it seems this comes out of Scottish loyalty because um, there's a whole contingent of Scottish soldiers in this unit. And the tension between the English and the Scottish soldiers, while not a major theme, is hinted at throughout the novel and makes for an interesting tension and a bit of backstory. Scotland, of course, having just been integrated into the British Empire and often in the 18th century an open revolt against the British about being part of England, the United Kingdom. There was a bunch of Stuart loyalists. If, if you don't know the background history of this, it's enough to say that the, the line of like the King James, King Charles, uh, Queen Mary, and then her, then the, the throne went to Queen Anne. Queen Anne would have been the last of the, was the last of the Stuart kings. She didn't have to be. She actually had many kids. She had like, I think 14 kids or 10 kids or a lot. And they all died or they, none of them reached adulthood. So, the Stuart line died out with her. Yet there was Stuart family members around, specifically uh, James III, uh, James II's son. But as a Catholic, you know, he really couldn't have been accepted in England as the king of England. So they went around his line and went to the the Hanoverian line. And that line actually originated, I believe, with King James I and Sorry, I forgot all, some of the details, but it's something like one of King James's daughters was sent to Europe to marry, like I think it was the King of Bohemia or something. She was known as like the Winter Queen, and then so eventually that line got into the to run Hanover. So so they were called in, so they're connected to the Stuarts, but but they're not the straight Stuart line. Anyways, the Scottish independence people affiliated themselves with with the Stuart. Um, the, the Stuart line of James II. Anyways, that's a long aside, but these tensions exist in the British Empire at the time. And that's a, kind of an interesting subplot. Cooper doesn't get much into it, but it's it's hinted at. So anyways, that's what's going on in the fort. Now, they're just kind of downtime here for a while, but they do. Cooper fills it up with a shooting contest, which was won by Jasper due to Pathfinder actually throwing the final contest. Of course, Pathfinder can't lose a shooting contest. His, his name is Hawkeye in Last of the Mohicans, after all. But after this uh, contest, the party sets off for the Thousand Islands, which is on the kind of right where Lake Ontario meets the St. Lawrence River. And this is a place where the British are kind of having secret bases to raid the French shipping as they're trying to send supplies into the Great Lakes. Hopefully, they just basically send a, it's a whole detachment of soldiers going to relieve this fort. And they hope to this, then to disrupt French supply routes. And that's one reason Pathfinder is brought along. It's a pretty run-of-the-mill voyage. Jasper usually could handle this just up and down from the Thousand Islands. But Pathfinder's along basically to help with the, disrupting the French supply routes. But on the way, doubts are spread about Jasper's loyalty. And when Arrowhead and Dew of June are captured and and then immediately escape, Jasper is confined and, and confronted as a traitor. 
The ship then is given to the command of Cap, who instantly loses the ship, gets them lost in Lake Ontario. They end up in Niagara, completely the other direction, in the storm, facing a French ship called the Montcalm. So basically, Jasper is forced to be put back into command. He successfully helps the ship ride out the storm, and then they move back on course. And so after a, a kind of an aside of almost six chapters, we end up exactly where we left off. So basically, we're back at Lake Oswego or near it. They don't ever quite get there, but they're near geographically to it. And they have to still get to Thousand Islands. But one important event happened uh, after the storm, and that is Pathfinder very awkwardly proposes to Mabel. He embarrasses himself and gets turned down. But uh, this is basically why Mabel's father wanted her in in the raging. She wanted Pathfinder to propose to her. And it's been set up for a little while that these two would get together. So with that, let's look at the next six chapters of the Pathfinder, the next 100 pages or so. It's a little bit longer than normal, but I wanted to stick to six chapters per per episode just because that's kind of on average uh, about 100 pages per episode it's a little bit easier to just divide up the reading that way so we'll look at chapters 19 to 24 this is the chapters where the action really picks up um, it's this novel was a bit of a slow burn there's a little bit of action in chapters four five and six and then there's really nothing except the storm until now but right really quickly now the action is going to pick up and this is really where the core kind of excitement of the novel comes thematically it's perhaps not as rich as some other parts of the novel because it really is cooper finally pushing the plot forward with something he'd been hadn't done for about half the novel up to this point so yeah for about half the novel they just sit at the fort and then they have this kind of side quest where they get lost in lake ontario okay but anyways chapter 19 so the ship they're on, called the Scud, it's basically this this like ship commanded by Jasper. They finally make it to uh, the Thousand Islands, but it's not without peril. The French are on to them, and the ship they saw before, the Montcalm, actually puts itself between the Scud and the fort. And so they kind of hope to stop back at Fort Oswego and resupply and chill out for a while. But they realize they can't do that. They're going to have to go straight to Thousand Islands. Um, even... Early in this chapter, they still they talk a little bit about Niagara Falls. Pathfinder tells, talks about how he saw uh, Niagara Falls before. And I think, they, as I recall, they kind of joke with Cap because Cap was tricked into kind of running a, a waterfall earlier in the novel because he was being so braggadocious about saltwater sa sailors. And these freshwater voyagers wanted to show off that, you know, it's not that easy. And they kind of do that. And they, there's a little bit of joking about Niagara Falls because, of course, that that's a much more dangerous and uh, bigger <laughs> falls than, than the one they took them down. But anyways, uh, this basic situation is they, they really can't get back to the fort and they have to get to Thousand Islands. But Jasper immediately excels at command in situations like this. He uses all of his skills to evade the French warship. And as a result, they reach their destination. But Cap also begins to express his admiration or respect for Jasper. So this is a bit of an important turning point for the character Cap, who's up to this point has had a lot of just tension and hostility towards Jasper, partially because he's not trusted. He has he speaks French, so that makes him suspect. But more, more importantly, because he's a freshwater sailor and these seawater sailors really don't respect uh, these lake and river captains. 
And here's what Cooper writes on this change. Uh, Cap was obliged to acquiesce, as in everything around him had the appearance of Jasper being sincere. There was not much difficulty in making up his mind to submit. It would not have been easy indeed for a person of the most sensitive on the subject of circumstances to fancy that the Scud was anywhere in the vicinity of a port as long established and as well known as the frontiers as Frontenac. The islands might not have been literally thousands in number, but they were so numerous and small as to baffle calculation, though occasionally one of larger size than common was passed. So, and then you get more description of this, and then Cap says to Pathfinder, I give it up, I give it up, Pathfinder. It's defying and very nature of seamanship and sending all the laws of rules to the... Ugh. Sorry. Sorry about that. A truck went by. Um, the main point here is that he, he's just baffled by how difficult it is to navigate these kinds of waters. And, and then Pathfinder again reminds him that this is what Jasper's good at. This is where Jasper's skill really comes. And we start to see Cap beginning to turn in his opinion of, of Jasper. They finally arrive at the secret British fort and they set off. The old hands of the station are relieved. So they go onto the scud with Jasper and basically head back. And we learn that the location of the island is very strategic. It's, it's important that this is the kind of place that, that the French would never find on their own uh, without a trader in the midst, in their midst. So it, it's just kind of, there's so many islands here and basically all that's there is a camp and a blockhouse. It's, it's really not much. It can't be really seen from, from the water. So it'd be almost impossible for the French or, you know, to find it without help. So after this transition, uh, you know, a bunch of people stay behind. There's the whole contingent of soldiers. It ends up being like two boatloads. Um, Dunham is there, Mabel. There's another woman there, Jenny, who was one of the soldiers' wives. Cap is there, Pathfinder, Chingachgook, of course. Jasper goes back. And then Muir, the quartermaster Muir, stays behind as well. So Muir takes his time to try to work on his relationship with Ma with Mabel. It's it's almost a running joke at this point because every time it comes up, it comes up like you know maybe you'll marry Muir and she just laughs at it and don't you know no one thinks it's a really good idea because Muir had three wives before so he doesn't seem to be the most trustworthy of men but he does try to flirt with her a little bit and it doesn't have any effect but it's it's a bit humorous to to read I I kind of appreciate the character of Muir because it has Cooper trying to write in the Scottish accent or Scottish almost dialect at times. And it allows us to, to explore this issue of, of the relationship or the place of Scots in the British army. I don't know much about that particular attention, but, you know, they were the newcomers into the United Kingdom. Of course, they had a shared monarchy for a long time, but they had separate before whatever it was, 1708, 1707, they had separate and separate parliaments. It was only after, in the early 18th century, that they got unified. So anyways, uh, basically they're preparing to send out some boats right away, these two groups of soldiers, two boatloads of soldiers, basically to capture French supplies. Now, Sergeant Dunham, has he's going to go off, so he has a heart-to-heart -heart with his daughter, and he laments that she did not choose to marry Pathfinder, and he tells her that he really wants to prepare her for a time when he passes. And of course, he's going to battle. So this is his death is on his mind. And out of a feeling of duty to her father, Mabel agrees that she will marry Pathfinder if he proposes again. Now we get in this section a little bit of a conversation about piracy. So if you're interested in this whole question of 
piracy and law. Of course, the British and French are at war, but, you know, during this time at sea, you know, navies weren't really big enough to really patrol the sea. So merchant captains would get these like letters of mark, right, which would give them the right to basically it was a contract with the government to say you have the right to seize shipping from our enemies, but only our enemies, not ourselves. And people went pirate when they took the letter of marks and kind of threw it away and just attacked everyone. But um, it's a little less clear what the law is at on freshwater. You know, does the same rules apply as they do at the high seas? And I think it's Cap who brings up this question of what we're doing is essentially is piracy. But, uh, you know, they conclude that it's wartime. And, and I think Sergeant, the Colonel... Yeah, the colonel's here too, um, McNabb. But they have this kind of letter of mark, essentially, for seizing French supplies. Anyways, they're, they're kind of the military too. So I don't quite know all the politics that goes into this, but it's an interesting aside and it might be worth looking into a little bit more detail. Um, we get a lot in this chapter about the father's duty to the daughter and the need of women for security. Um, so, again, you know, feminism, feminists might get some traction out of a text like this because it it deals with it. It's also in the Deerslayer as well, this question of like the women in the frontier and how can women survive in the frontier without the security of, of men. And Dunham actually suggests that in the frontier, women often are needed to defend themselves in places like this. Um, quote, Anyways, can't find it, but it's he at one point does say that women on the frontier have to defend themselves and they can't be totally passive. But he still has this concern that he wants her to be be protected and to, you know, have have the security. And he's really fearful of his of his of his upcoming death. And this is all foreshadowing, as you might suspect. Um. Okay, chapter 20. I guess it's a long chapter, but 19 was pretty long. But chapter 20. So those who remain behind are only a handful. It's, it's actually eight people, and two of them are, are the women. So we got Jenny, who was the wife of a soldier, and Mabel. And then we have Cap, uh, Muir, and, and soldiers. And then the, the rest are just soldiers. So... There's a lot of background characters in this novel who are never really named or addressed because the whole Scud expedition had probably 20, 30 soldiers with them. They had enough to man this base for this camp for raiding uh, the French supplies. But none of them are really mentioned. It, the closest we get is like that Jenny is the wife of one of these soldiers. So they're really background and Cooper doesn't really integrate them into the story at all or give them much to do. Now, we're reminded of just how at risk this place called Station Island is without the bulk of the troops. Really, the only thing they have going for them is that they are isolated and no one really knows what they are. The business of the past few chapters is set aside for a quiet feeling of danger we're given as the reader. A, a growing sense of fear of just how alone they are and how isolated and how at risk they are. And this is the tone that's going to dominate the next five chapters or so. It's just is isolation, confinement, loneliness, and, and this feeling of kind of abandonment and, and direct acute danger, just sometimes just a few feet away. Now, while they're at the camp, 
Dew of June arrives of all people. Right, so this is the third appearance she makes in the novel. The second time was very briefly, but here she arrives and she talks to talk to Mabel. Now remember, Dew of June had traveled with Mabel in the events prior to the novel beginning. So they were together at the start of the novel. So they had some history as she was the guide. And we get this fascinating conversation about friendship, about gender, and about cross-cultural relationships. Dew of June comes in to talk to Mabel with all sorts of baggage and all sorts of anxieties and fears, and yet also a feeling of obligation and duty to Mabel. Essentially, she wants to warn Mabel as a friend, but also as a fellow woman of a coming assault by the Indians, that the Indians are going to attack. And she says, go to the blockhouse, hide out in the blockhouse, and you, and you won't be killed. The people who stay out in the camp will be. But she also doesn't want Mabel to tell the the soldiers because she knows that if if they're warned of the assault, she'll be blamed and she'll be killed. And so we get this over this feeling of, of just the violence that Arrowhead is capable of inflicting on Dew of June, who's essentially a fairly helpless character in the novel, uh, at least in respect to her husband. She's able to do this very brave thing, warning Mabel. But she does it all this obligation to, to Mabel, not to Jenny, right? So she has this feeling. It's not about completely about gender, although at one point she does say, like, those are the English. I don't have an obligation to help the English soldiers. They would kill me if they had the chance. But you're a, you're a squaw like me. But she doesn't really lift a finger to help Jenny because she doesn't have a history with her. Now, the strong implication of violence that will be inflicted on Dew of June is really frightening to read, to be honest. Now, all these novels are very violent, um, and scalping plays a role of all of them so f in all of them so far. So this violence is not, I guess, new to us, but the way June of June talks about them, it's very chilling. Quote, if June has something to tell her friend, let her open plainly, she said. That's Mabel. Her, my ears are open. June frayed Arrowhead kill her. But Arrowhead will never know it. Mabel's blood mounted to her temple, as she said, for she felt that she was urging a wife to be treacherous to her husband. That is, Mabel will not tell him. He buried Tomahawk in June's head. That must never be, dear June. I would rather you should say no more than run this risk. Blockhouse, good place to sleep, good place to stay. Do you mean that I may save my life by keeping in the blockhouse, June? Surely, surely, Arrowhead will not hurt you for telling me that. He can't wish me any great harm, for I never injured him. Arrowhead wished no harm to handsome Paleface. Arrowhead loved Paleface girls. End quote. Now, despite this, they do kill Jenny shortly. But we also learn that there's another layer of threat to Arrowhead and that he wants to basically capture Mabel, bring her into his um, home and basically make him a second wife, a sister wife to Dew of June. Something Dew of June is not necessarily hostile to if she has to accept this, but they do have this kind of friendship. So anyway, I just think these conversations between Dew of June and Mabel throughout this novel and in later chapters is really well done. But essentially it comes down to that the Indians are going to attack, raid the camp, they know where it is, and she just wants Mabel to sleep in, in the blockhouse. When Mabel talks to her about the men, Dew of June has little care of their fate. Um, and it comes down to something quite realistic that, you know, quote, Every warrior watches his own scalp. June squaw and tell squaw, no tell men. And she has no reason to care. These men have been, of course, at war, devastating her homes. And you understand why she doesn't have that loyalty to these soldiers or care about their fate. 
So actually, in a way, we get a fourth suitor for Mabel in this chapter, if you're keeping track, and that would be Arrowhead, actually, has an interest in taking Mabel as a second wife. So nearly all of our male characters are either open to marrying Mabel or related to her in some way. There's a few others, but um, most of our major characters are in this position of possibly marrying Mabel. So she's really experiencing the male gaze pretty heavy. Something I talked about in the last episode. Now, as Mabel returns to camp after talking to Dew of June, she finds a red cloth on a tree, a bunting. I'm not quite actually quite sure what a bunting is, but it, it's basically a piece of red cloth on a tree. She shows it, and then Muir claims that this proves that there's a traitor in their midst. And again, we're reminded that there's this doubt cast on Jasper. And the assumption is, you know, Jasper, before he left on the scud, put this up. Now, this is the way of identifying where the fort is for the Indian attackers. But after we learn that, in fact, it's Muir who's the traitor, if you're reading carefully. The, the revelation that Muir's a traitor comes in a later chapter, the open one. But it's pretty hard, you know, pretty clear at this point, if you're paying attention. Quote, the quartermaster remained on the very spot and in a precise attitude in which he had left him for quite a minute, first looking at the bounding figure of the girl and then at the bit of bunting, which he still held before him in a way of to denote indecision. His irresolution lasted but for a moment, however, for he was soon beneath the tree where he fastened the mimic flag to a branch again. Though from his ignorance of the precise spot for whence it had been taken by Mabel, he left it fluttering from a part of the oak where it was more exposed than before to the eyes of any passenger on the river, though less in view from the island itself. So if he really wanted to protect the camp, he would have just hidden it, but he put it back on the, on the tree. So I think he's, he's revealed to be the traitor at this point. So that's chapter uh, 20. Chapter 21, Mabel did tell Dew of June she's not going to announce it, but she does want to protect Jenny. So she tells Jenny to stay near the blockhouse, but she doesn't really tell her why. And she, she doesn't want Dew of June's life to be at risk, but she also wants to protect Jenny if she can. So basically her advice is stay near the blockhouse. So if the Indians attack, she can get inside. She gives some vague idea that maybe Indians are nearby, but doesn't say a, a attack is imminent. So Mabel, by making a choice not to announce the attack is coming has basically condemned these men to death including her uncle cap in doing so though protects two of june so this is a pretty profound decision she makes i have to say now the, the commander of the remaining people is a character we haven't really met much before in this corporal McNabb. he's another scottish officer so you have Dun Duncan, the commander, Corporal McNabb, and Muir are, are part of the Scottish contingent of soldiers. We get a bit more of the picture of the conflict between the Scotland and English and how it manifests in the military. And it's just, I, it's worth reading this conversation. It's on page 346 of the Library of America version of the Pathfinder. So here's what Mabel says. My father has left you a responsible command. This is to McNabb. For should this island fall into the hands of the enemy, not only would we be captured, but the party, as it is out now, would in all probability become their prisoners also. It needs no journey from Scotland to this place to learn the facts. Needful to be, oh, that way of thinking, returned McNabb dryly. I do not doubt your understanding it as well as myself, Mr. McNabb, but I am fearful that you veterans accustomed to, as you are to dangers and battles, are little apt to overlook some of the precautions that may be necessary in the situation as peculiar as ours. 
They say Scotland is no country, country woman, young woman, but I'm thinking there must be a mistake in the matter. As we, as we here children are so drowsy head and apt to be overtaken when we least expect it. Um, so I'll just stop there and, and say, basically, she says, don't, don't you know what it's like to be in enemy country? And his response is, of course I know. And Mabel thinks, well, yeah, it's because you're a soldier. And he replies, no, it's because I'm Scottish. It's because I'm Scottish I know what it's like to have my enemies in my midst and to be defeated and conquered and occupied. And there's a bit of miscommunication in, in, over this conversation, but it comes down to a bit of resentment that McNabb feels for being part of, of this British Empire and, and the Scots losing their independence. At least that's how I read it. And I've, actually, we do learn later that that he was at at Culloden, this battle uh, during the Jacobite uprising, and that he actually fought for the quote unquote the pretender, and so he was he's one of these Stuart loyalists. Um, so that's 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 a nice bit. I never knew that this was part of Cooper's kind of attention um, in his writing, but there it is. It's it's a nice addition in this novel. So eventually the Indians do attack the island. Arrowhead is among the assailants. And the attack is basically the total devastation of the soldiers. Uh, McNabb, Jenny, and three soldiers are killed. Cap and Muir escape. So, and then that just leaves Mabel. So in the final scene of the chapter, Mabel is located by Dew of June. And she takes uh, Mabel to the blockhouse. Chapter 22. So June takes Mabel to the blockhouse. And they basically barricade the door and it's a bit ambiguous who's in the blockhouse so Mabel's able to sort of bluff the Indians on the outside and the Indians are a bit nervous about attacking because they don't know who might be inside maybe it's Pathfinder now outside is a group of Indians Arrowhead and a French aide to the Indians called Salinger so we do have a French officer nearby who's who's kind of coordinating these attacks this attack um Saving them is this basic. There's a couple of things. One is there's a bit of ambiguity about who's in the blockhouse. You know, is it dangerous? Can you attack it without being slaughtered? And then also the Indians want to make the whole location look normal. They don't want to burn down the blockhouse and they don't want to. They basically want a facade that everything's hunky dory at the camp because when the soldiers come back, they can be ambushed. If, it, if they burn it down, then Pathfinder and others will know right away that something's up. So they even make the dead soldiers look like they're standing up in a position as guards. So they kind of prop them up with twigs or whatever. Now, June begins to train Mabel. While during this situation, June talks more about marriage. Um, and this is, I think, a, a fault maybe of Cooper is that he has awkward conversations at times. And you, it's hard to believe that people would talk this way in these circumstances. But June does begin to sort of train Mabel in what to expect as being an Indian wife. And she kind of balks at this. It comes down to the husband must come first, even if the woman must risk her life. And this is a bit of a contrast to the assumptions that you have from like Dunham, that the man should be willing to die and sacrifice himself for the wife. But here it's the wife should lay down her life for the husband. Mabel scoffs at this and, and basically makes clear she doesn't want to marry um, this man. And then she says, well, why don't you marry Jasper? Jasper's like the young hottie, so you should, you should be with him. 
So June's a bit open-minded about the options for Mabel. June tells Mabel a bit more about Arrowhead, and we learn some important background in his motivations. He actually has something similar to Makwa in Last of the Mohicans in that he's a powerful warrior, um, but has kind of fallen hard times and is using is betraying the English as a way to kind of raise his status among the tribe and to you know basically become a more important figure in his in his tribe. Quote, Arrowhead, though a chief, was in disgrace with his own people and was acting with the Iroquois temporarily, through though with a perfect understanding. He had a wigwam, it is true, but it was seldom he was seldom in it, feigning friendship for the English. He had passed the summer ostensibly in their service, while in truth he was acting for the French, and his wife journeyed with him on his many migrations, most of those distances being passed over in canoe. Yeah, we don't get as much background as we do with Magua. Magua is such a powerful uh villain such a great villain in american literature and we get his whole backstory and it's very tragic and sad and we actually sympathize with them arrowhead's less of a sympathetic character to be sure but he's got a little bit of that same hint that he's he's an indian who's fallen on hard times and he's then using the war as a way to kind of raise his status june leaves mabel alone for over a day at this point so mabel's completely alone surrounded by these indians so she kind of sneaks out when it's dark or something. I, I don't quite know the mechanics of how she managed that with the Indians around. But the Indians eventually get drunk and they start attacking the blockhouse. And I think at one point they even think about trying to burn it down or something. And it's all pretty perilous and, and scary for us. But they're still afraid that there's rifles in the blockhouse. And, and so they're still cautious and that hesitates. And eventually they all fall pass out from drinking too much. Eventually June comes back telling her telling Mabel that she'll be safe for a while because all the Indians have passed out and are sleeping. June emerges as a, as a fairly complex character with competing loyalties and desires. She does not want to just be a servant of the Iroquois. She has her own loyalties to her friend. But Cooper calls out her naivete in this chapter. Basically, he's telling the reader that Jew of June, Jew of June can't have it both ways. She really has to pick her sides. Um... Which is something Pathfinder, Leatherstocking always seems to do. So then we get to chapter 23. Um, the standoff comes to an end in this chapter. So Muir and Cap are discovered to have been in the captivity of Tuscarora all along. That they survived the attack and they were captured. They're brought forward and basically they're, they're used as a threat to encourage Mabel to surrender the blockhouse. They say, we'll, we'll kill them if, if you don't open the doors. Or scalp them, actually. Muir takes the position that Mabel should surrender the blockhouse. So this is the first of a couple conversations that Muir has with people in the blockhouse saying, why don't you just surrender? And it's a long speech he gives. Um, Cap, though, tells her to hold out, and she ends up listening to her family. She sticks a rifle through the hole and tries to bluff them that this is Killdeer, this is Pathfinder's rifle. And that Pathfinder, suggesting Pathfinder's with her. And this sort of works. And then Mabel is able to see Chingachgook arrive. She singles, singles him, basically saying, you know, I'm here. And he arrives after dark. And he reveal, really reveals himself to be actually Pathfinder in a Chingachgook costume. This was such a big theme in Last of the Mohicans is costumes and people dressing as other people. And we had a bear costume and we had... Uh, a character, what was his name, David Gamut, often dressed as an Indian, and we had Gamut dressed up as 
Uncas at one point, and I, I went on and on about this in that series on Last of the Mohicans. But it's a fun part of it, and it's it dates the work a little bit. I, I think that's it's something that didn't show up in the movie version of Last of the Mohicans, the Daniel Day Lewis one. But it's it's so much fun in the novel. All this kind of dressing in different ways. It, it doesn't happen in this novel very much. Of course, we do have a traitor, but it's never costumes never used but here we have a moment where it's kind of a shout out to the last of the mohicans where pathfinder dresses himself as chingachgook to get into the get into the blockhouse and then pathfinder announces to her that the plans of the indians were pretty bad and he was never fooled so all this effort to make it look like the assault on the camp never happened never fooled pathfinder for a minute he knew right away that those propped up bodies were were not real and he knew that there was an attack you know, you could just, he's a tracker. So you could just tell by looking at the ground that this happened. So Chingachgook and Pathfinder then were sent ahead. Basically, they leave to go warn the soldiers. So they leave Mabel alone again. And the plan is to go and find the soldiers and warn them that if they come, they're going to be ambushed. Yet the main group of soldiers is too quick and they actually do arrive and they fall into an ambush at the end of this chapter. In the fighting, Dunham is, is wounded. So Mabel's father is wounded severely mortally. Essentially, he's he's going to die. But he's not dead. And somewhere during the fighting, also Cap escaped and got into the blockhouse. So the ambush worked very well. Basically, putting our heroes in the same situation Mabel was in. That you have a weaker group held up in a blockhouse with a more powerful force on the outside. Um, and most of the British soldiers are just gotten rid of so cooper writes them out in an ambush just has them all die i think a few survive but you know by and large he you know all i mean there's a plot problem here is how could you have this a group of well-trained british soldiers in the vicinity and then you know 20 indians essentially taken out well he gets around this by having them all die in an ambush so we're in a very perilous position so chapter 24, this chapter opens up with the characters basically catching up, getting the full story from each other about what happened. And this helps the reader, too, to know all that what happened uh, while Mabel, while we she focused on the camp. You know, these other characters were out raiding French um, supplies. And I think they actually capture a couple canoes of, of French supplies. So it was fairly successful, even if at a high cost of life in the end. Dunham and Mabel have their serious father-daughter conversation about the fact that he's going to die soon. And of course, Dunham is still anxious about his daughter's future and who she's going to marry. Dunham tries to talk Pathfinder into retreating to Oswego with Mabel to basically bail on this and get to the fort where she'll be safe. But Pathfinder insists on defending the blockhouse. And while he's not yet dead, you know, but he's dying, he, he does grant pathfinder possession of his daughter and he, he basically comes back to this issue of i want you to marry her and take care of her and protect her now once again muir comes up and tries to negotiate a surrender he's still not really revealed as a traitor yet although again your careful reader would know by now that he is a traitor and he's basically trying to talk him into surrendering the position that maybe the indians feel they can't take but this fails and so they're forced to basically attack the the blockhouse they shoot it with one shot of a cannon apparently they only had the one shell so it's a one-off shot they they have and it doesn't really work they shoot the blockhouse with rifles but it's too well defended it's too the you know it's hard to you can't really shoot through wood 
very well. So the rifles don't have much success and they're just wasting bullets. And then finally they try to burn it down. But this doesn't work well either because it's they can kind of just put out the fires very easily. The, the roof was flat and they could easily put out the fires with water. So I think even it was rainy, so it was a bit wet. So the f- fires aren't going to work either. And the scene with the fire is actually pretty counterproductive. So because actually as the Indians set up this brush around them and the brush is all green and kind of wet wood, they started on fire. And this actually creates enough light at, during the night that Pathfinder is able to shoot two of the Indians. And this scares them off for the time being. So um, as with the previous six chapters, we sort of end up where we began in in the last episode, we saw how we started with right up, you know, on a boat, leaving the Fort Oswego, and we ended those six chapters basically in the same place, in the same situation. It's kind of like that here too, where you started with characters hiding out in a blockhouse, and now we end with characters hiding out in a blockhouse, surrounded by Indians. Yet here, the plot is much more farther moved along. Uh, the expedition has mostly failed. They did take a couple of French supply ships or canoes but you know a huge loss of life and uh basically they're going to be forced to retreat back to lake oswego this this particular position is exposed dunham has been killed our trader has been exposed as muir and we learned much more about arrowhead and his wife so there's a little bit more character development and plot development in this section than previously but still we kind of have the sluggish storytelling that cooper has been known for the most fascinating sections of this part of the novel for me really surround the character Dew of June and her feelings about marriage, her feelings about her obligation to her husband, her fear of her husband, the intense violence at the heart of this relationship, and the conflicts that exist over her conception of loyalty. Pathfinder, the titular character, is hardly on stage during this entire part of the novel. Our action is really quite intimate. It's really focusing on Mabel, it's a worsening situation, her face coming to face the, her own possible death and then the death of her father. And this death will be long and will extend it to the final section of the novel. And it'll, be, it'll really dominate uh, the last part of the story. So, now, what are our themes here? Well, I think duty is a major theme in this part of the novel. And it, it is there throughout all of the Pathfinder, but it really comes to the forefront here. We have the duty to the British. We have Pathfinder's duty to the empire and to his service he, he's kind of a free agent in a lot of ways but throughout these novels he does remain pretty much on the side of the british empire we'll see when we get to the pioneers does this extend to a loyalty to the united states but we have other duties conflicting here like McNabb and muir's duty to scotland and duty to their home country and how you know does that duty extend now to the broader british empire duty to one's husband Duty to a daughter, duty to, you know, people in general. Um, and then also duty to one's gender. There's this line that Dew of June gives that I don't help the men. I help, you know, you're a squaw, so I help squaws. So I think just duty dominates this part of the novel. Another uh, more, I guess this is more of the plot device. I don't know how much of a theme it is, but deception is a part. We got a little bit with Chingachku costume that Pathfinder wears. A lot of bluffing is going on. Mabel was trying to bluff the Indians. The Indians are trying to bluff Mabel, like threatening to scalp Muir, who's Muir's actually the traitor, so they probably weren't going to do that. 
um, the bluffing, the deception of the fakes propping up the dead soldiers to make it look like they're still alive. The whole ambush. So deception runs through this as well. Duty and deception. And these sometimes are intention, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes we perform our duty by being deceitful and deceiving others. So that's really all I could pull out for themes that I haven't really mentioned before. I mean, we marriage is talked about. Maybe I should add to this Indian marriage. And I don't know how accurate Cooper's description of it is, but it, it's turned on its head the way Cooper describes it. So it's not the men sacrificing for their wives and daughters, as in the fam, the white families we see in this novel. It's the wife's absolute duty to even die for her husband in the Indian marriage. Again, I don't know if that was true among the Iroquois, but that's how Cooper presents it. So um, I guess that does it. As always, thank you so much for listening to my thoughts on these works of, of these American writers that I love so much. If you have comments of your own, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And then we will be back with part four, part, no, part five, the finale of The Pathfinder. Thanks again for listening. Let Christian men take heart today. The devil's rule is done. Let no man heed the devil more, for Jesus Christ has come. But hear ye all what angels sing, how Mary made for Jesus King. Jesus, ah.